Father God, as we look to you now for really the, the beauty of gratitude and the ugly sin of ingratitude, as we see displayed uh, here in our passage this morning, and we pray for eyes that can see and a heart that wants to apply these things and keep them in focus so we could be a blessing to you and not a liability. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So of all the characters in the gospel that uh, come to Jesus for healing, I don't think there's anybody more needy or desperate or miserable as the leper. And uh, the gospel of Luke records an incident uh, with not just one sufferer, but 10. And it makes a great text for the week before Thanksgiving because it really highlights, as I was praying about in the opening prayer, the sweet virtue of gratitude and how good and necessary it is to give God thanks for all the wonderful blessings he does for us and, and, and is to us as our Heavenly Father. And also how ugly and deplorable the sin of ingratitude, especially toward God, uh, considering who God is and who we are and what we have done uh, to be treated with such mercy and given uh, such grace that we don't deserve. I, I mean, so, yeah. And, and also ingratitude really causes us to forfeit a lot of good things that God has for us. So Boy, in a real poignant statement, it was Mark Twain, and I and I mentioned this in my blog post uh, recently. Mark Twain wrote, uh, "If you pick up a starving dog, feed him, take care of him, and make him prosperous, he will not bite you. This is the principal difference between a dog and a man." <laughs> Ouch. Yikes. So we're going to see two different responses to the same amazing miracle uh, this morning. One response, a heart that overflows with praise and thanksgiving, while others who received the same blessing just couldn't be bothered uh, to return thanks. And so, yeah, expressing gratitude and living that out every day. Uh, you know, it's not always easy. We have lives and we get distracted and we've got difficulties and so we're prone to forget. That's why we opened with Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his amazing blessings because it's so easy to do that. Self-absorbed creatures that we tend to be. So let's dive in and see these two responses lived out before our very eyes and then um, put this truth into practice. Luke 17, 11 through 19. Now on his way to Jerusalem, the third time and final time, there are three months left in his human uh, ministry there, humanly speaking, now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. 
one of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? My goodness. Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. The verb there is to save, as in whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's the same word there. So it has the sense of healing, wholeness, and salvation, rescue from the worst leprosy of all, uh, the leprosy of sin. And so uh, let's talk about this. Now, uh, really, the passage is short, sweet, and to the point, or I could say short, rude, and to the point, uh, because of those who just couldn't be bothered to, to eke out a little time for the Lord who just lifted their death sentence uh, from them. Yeah, it's just rude not to say thank you, especially when we're dealing with eternal things and we're talking about God and his kindness and his unmerited favor he lavishes upon us to not have a grateful attitude in life, an attitude of gratitude, as I've been calling it, is just really sad. And so we're taking a look at this and trying to catch the truth here uh, for our takeaways. You see, we just tend to take God's uh, blessings for granted. We get caught up in all of the blessings and we forget about the one who makes it all possible in the first place. Another stinging comment from G. Campbell Morgan, a wonderful Bible scholar, uh, he wrote, we must feel that this is a question, where are the other nine, which our Lord asked continually through the ages because of the perpetual problem of man's ingratitude. Yeah, it just doesn't come natural to us. We may know it in our heads, and certainly any Christian is saying, oh, I'm so grateful to God, and, and, and I'm a thankful person, and then all I have to do is ask you, when's the last time you complained? Or you're murmuring about something, or you're discontent, or you get on your high horse about something. That doesn't sound like somebody who has a fresh and powerful and profound understanding of how they are indebted to God for the very breath they're breathing, you see. So we all think of ourselves like, yeah, I'm so grateful to God. And, and, and then when he asks us to do the tiniest little thing that rubs us the wrong way, we're like, oh, you know. That doesn't show that you're super grateful and want to give back to the one who saved your life. And not just from drowning in a pool, but from something the Bible calls the bottomless pit. Yeah, he spared you that and me that. And, and the proof that we are living in gratitude is our behavior, the response to do what he wants us to do, to be who he's made us to be. And so that's why we're paying attention uh, to this passage. Let's dive in. Verses 11, 12, and 13. If you're taking notes and you want to uh, 
uh, have talking points, cries for mercy, would work here. Now, Luke gives the coordinates of this particular miracle as far as the location goes because it's going to set us up for the punchline at the end, which adds a little extra sting to an already pathetic picture of these righteous Israelites who are ingrates. And uh, this bad guy in the story, at least from a Jewish perspective, this half-breed, unethical Samaritan, is the one who gets it. And he's the one who outshines the guy you would think would have the advantage and get it and come back and do what the Samaritan is doing. So he has to tell us uh, that there's uh, this happened on the border of... Um, Northern Galilee border, uh, Southern Galilee border. Let me show you the map. That'll be helpful to even me here. Okay, so there's the Sea of Galilee up there. Sea of Galilee here, and uh, Galilee's the region here. So it happened here on the border uh, of here. Now, this central valley that's in the way of everybody wants to go from the north to the south to Jerusalem, or Jerusalem back up there, they have to pass through. The Jordan River divides. That's the end of Israel on that side. The Decapolis isn't really technically uh, Israel, but the Jews so hated the Samaritans that they would go across the Jordan and go around, you see. But Jesus, he's not afraid of social pariahs, outcasts, people nobody else likes, because he came to seek and save the lost. And he said, by the way, I didn't come for righteous people, I came for sinners. So the one qualification to save you is, is that you're a sinner. Because you don't save people who are already saved and good and doing fine. You save people who are helpless. Sinners, yeah. Well, what happened here? Where's the love loss? You know? Well, when Assyria came in at 722 BC, they conquered the northern kingdom. And what they did in Samaria was to take the Jews away as POWs to places like Iran and Turkey, which was Assyria, and repopulate this region with Babylonians and Assyrians who mixed with the remnant Jews to form um, half-breeds, as the Jews would call them, uh, and they changed their religion. They didn't worship in Jer Jerusalem. They only believed in parts of the Bible, and they had some unethical ways, and so the Jews called them unclean, and, and they wouldn't even walk through the territory, like I said. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, who came to seek and save the lost, He's drawn to people like that. And so he's coming full steam down. He's going, he's not going around. He's coming through, you know? And he doesn't care about the animosity or the pushback, you know? So the, one of the times he did this before, he sat down, and just to make the point, he sat down at a well in Samaria next to a woman, and he engaged her in a little friendly uh, dialogue, conversation, because he's trying to win her. He's not offended by her or her weird religion or her offensive behavior of having had five husbands and now 
Uh, she was living with a guy she wasn't married to. He's not offended by that. He sits down and starts a conversation. And what does she say? I love it. How is it, quoting her, how is it that a Jewish man is talking to someone like me, a Samaritan woman? Uh, in essence, don't you know that's against the rules? <laughs> We're supposed to hate each other. Um, what are you being so nice and friendly and talking to me? Well, Jesus lets her know, well, I'm, I'm actually more than just a Jewish man. I happen to be the Jewish Messiah. And he told her that. Why? Because he, he didn't come to give her grief. He came to give her eternal life. And he called it a living water there at the well. It was a beautiful story. So here he comes again now, and he meets these guys. Uh, he's seeking and saving the lost, but lo and behold, they come to him, right? Or so it appears that they came to him because Jesus lets us in on a family secret, doesn't he? He says, oh, by the way, no one can come to me unless the Father God is drawing them. So somewhere between God drawing you and you cooperating and choosing to come, somewhere in the mix of that, uh, they come. And there they are uh, crying out. Now they stand at a distance because um, uh, of a biblical mandate. Leviticus 13 and verse 46 says as long as they had this leprosy, uh, they had to remain unclean. Uh, and that put them in isolation. They must live alone. They must uh, live outside the camp, to quote uh, Leviticus 13. And so, yeah, they're, they're, and we understand why they're crying. So, And the word for loud is really loud. And by the way, a leprosy could affect their vocal cords. And so the raspiness of their uh, voice, you just want to start picturing uh, just this horror um, of people who are just being eaten away by a flesh-eating bacteria. Of course, there's a multi-drug therapy, it's called, uh, that has taken uh, leprosy uh, off the table for most of the world. But back then, it was just a death sentence for sure. And uh, yeah, that's why we know that they are crying out for mercy uh, because of the unspeakable horror. Now, there was something worse than the physical disease. The physical disease, bad enough, painful, open, festering sores. It's a horrible smell and rotting flesh and, and the humiliating disfigurement of their faces, especially the nose, uh, because they would eat away the cartilage. And so everything would just start to be gnarled and uh, their fingers and their toes and uh, just really uh, horrible uh, corruption and how it spread and it was contagious. And for these reasons and for many others, the Bible uses leprosy as a symbol of sin because sin and leprosy share a lot of similarities. Uh, but a thousand times worse than any of that was the unspeakable pain and the nightmare of being isolated from society. Now, yeah, you know, those who were uh, isolated temporarily during the pandemic, uh, you would know just a tiny bit of the torment 
of not be able not being able to be around friends and family, especially in a time of need. Uh, torture for sure, but more than two or three weeks of isolation. How about a lifetime? So what would happen is they would get a scaly little patch of skin. In fact, the Greek word lepros means scaly or rough. And they'd go to the health inspector who was the local priest and the priest would, would, would declare yes or no. That's leprosy. And from the second he declared them leprous, that's the last time you touch your wife, pick up your kids or be touched ever again. By anybody you know, you will are, are barred. And and lepers, because of their love for other people, uh, they went along with it just fine because they didn't want to infect somebody with such a horrible uh, uh, doom as walking around like dead men uh, walking. And so, yeah, excluded from life on all levels. I I can't imagine. So they had to form their own societies. They'd find other lepers and and create little what we call colonies of diseased people who uh, were living under what they themselves considered to be the curse of God, you see. So on top of everything else, to think that God's hand, that you deserve that, you did something or your parents did something. This is how they thought. And so it's just layer and layer upon layer of torment. And so that's why they're shrieking this gut-wrenching cry for mercy. And notice as we move along here, mercy, they don't come out and say, heal us or cleanse us. They cry out for mercy, which is really amazing to me. And it's really, mercy is really prized in the Bible, though it it, it comes hard to us uh, because it's humiliating uh, to cry out on no merit of how well you have suffered and how you did nothing to deserve this and the pain and the agony of it all. And yet you've maintained your integrity. No, none of that. They don't take a chance at even saying, please heal us, lest it sound presumptuous or demanding, like I'm telling God or the Lord what to do. And so they opt for the much better biblical way to approach God is always asking for mercy, you see. Commentators, one of them, said it's only those who are acutely aware of their wretched, helpless condition who can know their need for mercy. Self-righteous people, people who err in their thinking about themselves and how good they are as people, sadly, um, find asking God for mercy and considering yourself outside of the grace of God a, a, a wretch, amazing grace that saved a wretch like us. There are people who don't sing that, as I've told you before. They've changed in many churches and many arenas. They have changed, swapped that word out because it's beneath them. It's beneath them to consider themselves as wretches. In fact, uh, some people out there uh, have, quote, gathered around themselves a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want 
to hear 2 Timothy chapter 4. And, and what, what do they want to hear? So this attitude of I don't need to humble and grovel and consider myself such a, a needy wretch of a person. No, I don't need to do that because I've got a lot of good things going for me. Oh, well, you know, humble cries of mercy is the way to go. And uh, they're told, oh, no, you're a king's kid, man. And you just name it and claim it. You just you don't ask for mercy. You don't say, if, if it's your idea, if it's your will, Lord. Oh, no, no, no. You speak it out. You tell God, this is the way it is. You said it. I believe it. Therefore, it's mine. That's a far cry from this humble crying out, just saying, God, nothing good in me. You're not obligated to do anything for this nobody. All I ask for is your mercy because you're good and kind to people like me. And uh, it rang some bells uh, with God there. And how grievous, by the way, it is when people act like that to a God who described himself the Lord Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. He says, because I'm gentle and humble in heart. Wow. This arrogant way of approaching and living life with God, just taking everything for granted and assuming upon his good graces. Oh my goodness. Not good, not good at all. So uh, notice this with me. They know he can heal them. He's got the power to do so. How they get that? Now, just I wrote down in big letters the power of a testimony. They've heard from other people who were uh, down and out that there's this God who intervened with mercy in my life and changed me, and therefore I've got something to tell you because I see that you're suffering with maybe the same good graces of God that reached out and made such a difference in me can do that the same with you, you know? And that's how they knew. Maybe, you know, a blind man that Jesus healed uh, could open his eyes now and see their plight. And a guy who, who couldn't hear before, now he's been changed and he can hear their cries and it stirs his heart and maybe he had a mute tongue. But when God unmutes your tongue, it wants to bless his name and help others by glorifying him to them so that they could come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. So uh, best of all, were the former lepers because Jesus didn't just heal these ten. The former leper who comes and say, hey man, you know, they had ministry to the lepers, for sure. Well, you had the lepers uh, got through everyday daily necessities by charitable hearts that would leave clothing and tent supplies and camping equipment and, and food and water jugs and all of that. They'd leave them in designated areas and the lepers came and got them. And so you know, standing far off, there's. I was just like you. I lived in the colony down the village, down the road in the other village. And then Jesus came and he's coming through again. And so where would any of us be? If Christians received the blessing, got the transformation, and then just said, it's personal. 
just personal. I don't talk about personal things, okay? Where, 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 where would they be? <laughs> where would any of us be? If God, does the, if God Almighty does the slightest thing for you, it's cause for a verbal celebration, I think, of bringing praise and glory and honor to him. To glorify God means to make him bigger, to magnify God, to make him bigger. You see? And why? Well, because it's the right thing to do, but also because it, it, it's shining your light so that others can see and come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. Moving on. And here, here it is, note takers, a test of faith. Um, verse 14. When he sees them, he responds this way. And it's quite odd. Go, show yourselves to the priests. Well, in order to get back into society, uh, they had to get certified by the health inspector, the priest, to, to look at those scales and make sure they're they're gone, which really says something about salvation. Because had they gone in and they had the scales and said, I, I believe in Jesus, <laughs> well, why are the scales still oozing? <laughs> you see, that kind of thing. And so, yeah, oh, they'd go get the stamp of approval and um, be welcomed back into society into society. But what a way to do it. And this is the way God works. So to really pay attention. If you haven't been up until now, just really zone in here. Because it's important. Without faith, it's impossible impossible to please God. All right. Why? Well, God's invisible. Without faith, you can't hear him, you can't be directed by him, he can't correct you, he can't love on you, he can't comfort you, he can't do anything. Because everything that involves relationship with God, the many, many facets therein, depend on faith. So God is constantly trying to build it. He's constantly putting obstacle courses that require faith to, to ask you to do something without the slightest evidence except the promise of God. And as you obey, then it comes to you. And this is exactly what he's doing. Again, a faith-building exercise. They have no evidence of their healing. And yet he says, go your way. Go your way. Go make the trip all the way, as it were, to Jerusalem and, uh, you know, uh, implying you're healed when they're not. They have to do something first. One commentator, Morrison, since it's a long one, I have it quoted for you there. The one condition for their healing was obedience. He told them what to do. And if they're going to be healed, they got to do it. Even though the only evidence they have to go on is his word. And if they meant what they said when they called him master, let them now prove their faith by going. Now, this is where it could have all gone horribly wrong for them with an attitude problem. Now, wait a second here. You know, we don't see anything. We can go anywhere now. He said, go. I'm not going anywhere until you give me a little example 
do something, you know. And he said, I did. <laughs> I told you to go. <laughs> oh, but I'm not healed yet. It's everywhere. It is everywhere in the Bible. I went to make a list and I was overwhelmed because that's how God works. And if you're the kind of person who, who's God's requiring something of you, read it in the Bible. I'm supposed to do that. Well, if you do this, then I'll do that. No. <laughs> One of the perks of being God is you get to call the shots, you know? And so, so he tells us, he goes, no, when you do this, then you will know. What did Jesus say? This is everywhere, by the way. They're flooding my mind right now. Jesus said, if any man does my will, then he'll find out whether or not my teaching comes from God or not. No, first convince me and then I'll do it. How about the time when Israel's taken the promised land for the very first time? They come down to the uh, River Jordan and it's at flood stage, Joshua 3 tells us. And you just picture mighty torrents of rushing water, like waterfall almost, just like craziness. And he tells the priests as they're leading them into the promised land, he tells the priests, I'm going to open a little gate for you guys. And I want you to go down the embankment and walk into it. It'll open for you. Well, I can see the priest, the priest going, now, come again. Because uh, uh, here's what I think you should have said, and I think that you probably did mean, that as we go down, you'll open the river and then we'll walk through it. No, that's not what I said. I said, you walk into the river and it'll part for you. And the Bible says in Joshua 3, the second they touched the water, it opened. This is the way God works. I'm thinking of another time. I'm in San Francisco. Our kids are four, six, and eight. And God made through many, many circumstances us know it is time to get out of that city and go somewhere else. We had uh, San Jose on the mine, Petaluma, uh, Santa Rosa. We didn't know where we were going. And we both felt this pressure and, 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 and Barb saying, you know, we need to go. And I said, I know, but he hasn't told me where to go. And then right when I said that, I felt like the Lord said, well, I did tell you to go. So why don't you give your 30-day notice and then I'll tell you where to go. And it's like, this Abraham, I'm not Abraham. <laughs> but yes, we are. We're children of Abraham. And as Abraham was dealt with, we are dealt with the same way. Take a step, obey me. And that's what I did. I went down to Pasifisha. So what it's called on Geary in San Francisco. Climb the flight of steps going, I don't know, what am I doing? You know, <laughs> I'm 30 days. So I give my notice and she's like, oh yeah, we love the place and we love you as tenants and all of that. And then she throws me this, where are you going? I was like, oh, I'm not, I'm not prepared for that question. <laughs> so I, I think I said something like, hmm, north. <laughs> I had no idea. And then right away, within a month, of course, just like that. And we ended up in Petaluma, Calvary Chapel, Petaluma. And uh, well, it was amazing. So many stories of how he did that. But I'm telling you what, he really wanted me 
to obey the light he had already given. He gave the light, go. Time to go. All right, well, I'm waiting on you. No, 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 no. I've given you something to do. And I know he's speaking to you right now. I saw the look on your face, <laughs> right? Because he's given you something to do. And, and listen, everything in the Bible that says, be holy for I'm holy. Well, how do I do that unless you, no, go ahead. And if you have a withered hand, he says to the withered hand guy, stretch it forth. And the withered hand guy could go, uh, excuse me, I was born this way. If I could stretch it forth, I would have a long time ago. Why don't you get busy and heal me? And then, you know, no, 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 you stretch it forth. And, he, and it's just in faith, like, okay, okay. There it goes. It's where our obedience to the given word with no evidence other than a promise of God that we're going to cling to and step out of the boat when he says, come to me, we step out and then we walk. That's what's going on here. I think it's time to finish up uh, 15 through 19. And we'll finish up with some encouraging things here. Uh, really sad too. So one of them, as they're going, they realize that they're healed. The open sores healing themselves, as it were, they can sense that. So they're stopping, they're seeing, the guy's nose is, has now uh, returned to uh, what it was before leprosy, and they're all just hugging, and they're, they're out of their minds, and one of them turns and starts to take off, and they're like, where are you going? And, and he says, do you have to ask? Do you have to ask, where else would I be going? We have plenty of time to get to the priests. But who knows if Jesus had moved on, I got to see him and throw myself at him and thank him and love him and, and learn from him and hear what he wants me to do. What about you guys? Well, I'm thinking about my house and my kids and my wife and my new job, and my, my, me, myself, and I, which is perfectly normal and natural, only it can't come before God. Jesus is the one who said, if you love your little boy or your mom or dad in front of me, you're not worthy. You're not worthy of me. How could you put one of my blessings and, and use that as your adoration and your joy and, and the prompt for all of your behavior. All of your behavior is around your big idol of your boy or your girl or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or whatever it is, your job or money, whatever. Whatever dear, near and dear thing that can be good in itself. When it starts to dictate how you think and how you feel and how you decide... It's a bad thing. So here's another test for them. Is it about your healing? Or is it about me who made that healing possible? And for nine of them, they failed it. We got what we need. And now we're going to say some really nice things about you and, and live a really nice life but not really going to put you 
first. It's the new life with all of its excitement now and the celebrations now that I can go back to my life. The other one says, I don't have a life. I didn't have a life. My life is at the feet of the one who lifted this death sentence from me. This is really the deal. And the punchline, of course, is, is that he's a Samaritan. He didn't grow up with the advantages of knowing the Lord and the Bible and all of this stuff. Uh, he grew up disadvantaged. And some commentators pointed out that growing up as an outcast and then on top of all of the mean-spirited kinds of ways he was treated and excluded and isolated as a Samaritan, on top of that came the leprosy. So he was set up actually uh, for great praise and gratefulness by the kind of suffering he had endured, actually became an asset and not a liability. And the good, clean, living life of the other guys became a liability because God and blessing was just kind of an everyday thing, I guess, to them. It didn't uh, make them want to come. Now, what's poignant for me is, is that Jesus expresses disappointment and hurt and sadness. And we understand. We've, we've felt that pain. Haven't you ever poured yourself into somebody with love and sacrifice because you love them and you care about them and, and it's a big deal and you gave something of, of yourself especially true if they didn't really deserve it, but you went the extra mile and you did it and not appreciate it. No thank you. Nothing. How'd that feel? That's how your Savior felt. And one commentator said it's how he feels a lot because of the natural way that we tend to be and take everything. I was like, look at my hard work. Look what I just did. Look at uh, my accomplishment here. And look what I did here. And look how I managed this so well. And look at this. And we forget. We would have nothing. The Bible asks you this question, and me too. First Corinthians chapter 4. What do you have in your life that God didn't give you? Name one thing. The breath in your lungs. The wool from the sheep for the clothing that we have. Every single thing, the things we can do good. Our house, everything, he's provided everything uh, for us. And that's really uh, why we need to be thankful all the time. But when he asks a question, a rhetorical question, hey, he says out loud to everybody, hey, I, wait a second here. I poured my love and my healing virtue into 10, right? I counted them. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And there's only this one guy. And then he says it. He looks at the crowd. Where are the other nine? What a bummer. Wow. Where are the other nine? And as I said, you know, and, and here's... The implication is they should be here. 
because we give them a pass, they're so excited. And then here's what they probably would say in defense when, when he meets them in Jerusalem, because he's going to Jerusalem too. So he's going to run into one of them. Oh, you're, you're one of the ten. That's right. All right, I didn't catch your name uh, because there wasn't any, yeah. Well, you know what? <laughs> Guess what? Uh, I did exactly what you said, remember? You said, go, and I went. You know, I don't know why I'm in trouble now, and I'm the bad guy in the story, and every Thanksgiving for 2,000 years, everybody has to hear how ungrateful I was when, in fact, I just did what he said to do. Well, so did the other guy. And I could just hear Jesus looking at him, just see Jesus and hear him saying, all right, that's great. Why don't you run along now? You've got a big party to go to, I guess, right? Big celebration, you know? Yeah, go, go. You see, the one who came back throws his life before Jesus. Uh, he's going to have a different experience. And that's why Jesus says, your faith has saved you. We've gone deeper than just a skin problem. We've gone to a heart problem, and we've changed it and changed it for eternity. And now, you know, and, and what did it deprive those nine guys? Deprive Jesus the joy of seeing the the guys touching their faces and and dancing around and telling their stories to Jesus, like when mom and dad, when you just give a blowout for Christmas under the Christmas tree, and the kids got their favorite thing. And I'll tell you what, I can be moved to tears and was. <laughs> I remember, <laughs> unbelievable, one of the kids crying. <laughs> they were so happy, which made me cry, which made me cry now. <laughs> Why? Because that's how God designed us to be. And, and those nine robbed Jesus of Christmas morning, of seeing that the kids celebrate and cry and go, how could this have happened to me and all of this stuff? No, because they've got some place to be, I guess. So let's wrap up with this. Um, yeah. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to suffer and die so that he could say to the lepers, be cleansed. But more than that, of course, to spiritual lepers, be saved. So he would do that in a way that I don't know if you've noticed this or not. In Luke chapter 5 with a leper who came and threw himself before Jesus and um, said, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus moved with compassion, touched the leper and said, I'm willing, be healed. Now, by Jewish law, this man is cleansed. This man is defiled. So he said to the leper, let me defile myself and take your leprous condition upon me, the curse of God off of you onto me and my righteousness now and wholeness and salvation to you. And, and he's not the only one. The widow of Nain, whose son died, they're carrying him out on a stretcher, a coffin, a casket. And Jesus broke Jewish protocol and the law, as it were, and touched the casket. 
which made him unclean, and the death upon him, he says, let me take that. You have life, and I'll take the death. The woman with the issue of blood sneaks up behind, and he allows her to touch the hem of his garment, which makes him unclean. Her whole, go your way. Your faith has made you whole, woman. But now I am made defiled. And he carries the defilement to Jerusalem where he lays down on the cross and becomes the cursed ones. And all of our leprosy, all of the sores, all of the grossness of it all is laid on him and lightning from God the Father strikes and takes away all of that once and for all and forever more. This is the foundation for all of our joy in life. When we wake up in the morning, we realize our Jesus became us. I wrote this down. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whichever one of us lepers believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. He touches you, didn't he? He touched you and said, let me, let me take all of that pain and sorrow and hopelessness. I'll take it for you. And then he leaves us whole and with life. Let's pray together. Father God, we are grateful to know you. To have a God like you who could touch people like us and take it on yourself. And the sinless one who knew no sin became our sin. You are made to be Come our sin so that we might be right with God. Thank you for this mercy. Help us live it, Lord. Live that grateful indebtedness to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.